our sermon this morning, we're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 10. It's on page 716 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, and there's a sermon outline as well in the bulletin on uh, page 8 and 9 and, and 10. Our passage this morning is the final event before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we commemorate every year, of course, on Palm Sunday. So even though we have six lengthy chapters left in the book of Mark, uh, in the book of Mark, we are nearing the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. So from the perspective of the narrative, the tension is really building once we reach this point in the story. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover with his disciples. Apparently a large crowd of pilgrims from Galilee and from the northern part of Israel are with them. This would have been a joyous crowd. Uh, there was a whole section of the Psalms, the Songs of Ascent, that were presumably sung during this, uh, this march, this uh, pilgrimage to the yearly festivals up in Jerusalem. Yet the disciples, of course, must be sensing uh, some darker notes in this song. Along the way, Jesus has predicted to them a third time, with even more detail, that Jerusalem will involve suffering, that it will involve death, that it will involve a resurrection. And they've been struggling with this issue of understanding uh, what it means to be Jesus' disciple. We've seen examples of their immaturity and their misunderstandings in these last couple of chapters. But today we encounter a, a fresh face, a new disciple. Unlike the rich young man or those asking for positions of power in the coming kingdom, in this man, we find the whole story of conversion and discipleship all at once. It's really a remarkable story packed into this short narrative. This is the final healing miracle in Mark's gospel. And you might ask, why do we get another healing miracle here? We've seen a number of them as we've gone along through the story. What's unique about this one? Some of the miracles teach us something new about Jesus. They show us his power over diseases, his power over demons, his power over the weather or over nature. But some miracles, I think, are there to show us something particular in the context. And I think this one fits into that category. Now is the time to see. The past three years have been building up to this point. The long-awaited Messiah is at the gates of Jerusalem. He's coming to Zion, the city of God. Now is the time to see. And in Bartimaeus, we find one who sees. So read with me from Mark 10, starting in verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city... A blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And so they called the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. 
Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word and for these uh, accounts that are here for us to read. Help us to understand why this is in your word. Uh, help us to see what's true here. Uh, help us to learn about you and help us to apply that to our lives, that we would be, uh, that we would grow as a result and that we would be changed. So bless this time, these minutes together, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that, we were, that I was thinking about during our, our time in Quebec and even afterwards is, what does it look like when a person comes to faith in Christ for the first time? What, what, what do you see? What do you not see? It's different, of course, for each person. It's a very personal experience of the Lord's work, and sometimes it's hard to see it until much later for some of us. Not sure how, if we know how to process the kind of change in the moment, each Christian, of course, has their own unique story. I'm privileged, as over the last few years, to know a few of yours. Uh, it's sometimes not easy to articulate the Lord's work in our lives such that, such that we reach that point where we can finally say, I'm a disciple of Jesus. And it's not like you just say that once in your life and then that's all. There are events in our lives and crises and doubts that can cause us to have to say it again. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm following him. When we were in Quebec, I had a chance to speak with one of the campers. He was a 10-year-old boy. His name was James. Uh, he was there for the week. On the last day, I was the one who had done the, the chapel teaching that time. And uh, it, he was talking with one of his counselors, and then the counselor brought him over to me after the chapel time was over, and he, he wanted to talk to me more about the lesson and so we talked for a while and and he said that he wanted to follow jesus and he said you know i i think i decided this on the first day of camp and i was kind of too shy to tell anyone but i want to tell you about it and so we talked uh for a while we prayed together he asked me some interesting questions um I don't know much about his church background. Then later on during, the, during that day, he kept talking to, he talked to Virgil. He was talking to others about what does it mean to follow Jesus. He was not in church much, I don't think, but he was in camp that week. And many of us who saw him and talked to him over the course of the week, you know, I don't think I was any particular part of that except that I was there and he wanted to talk to me, would get a sense of hope, of trust, that James is on a, a new path, that he's on a life-changing path. I think the Lord did something specific in his life that week over the course of those days. I hope someday he will have a testimony and he'll be able to articulate it about what happened as a result of that week. And of course, it's bigger than just that week. But I think James' story connects with this story this morning. And something special happened in the life of this man. He's a picture of a new disciple, of one whose life was changed. His allegiance and his direction were changed by his encounter with Jesus. In Mark 10, 32, Mark records that they're on their way to Jerusalem. And now they're arriving at Jericho along the way in verse 46. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. This verse begins very similarly to the earlier he healing of the blind man in chapter 8. There are only actually two 
healings of blind people that are specifically mentioned in Mark's gospel. And the one that occurred in chapter 8, uh, of course, we saw a few, a few weeks ago, was the one that happened in two stages in order to illustrate the fact that the disciples are seeing and they're not seeing, that, they're, that things are still fuzzy to those disciples, even as they're trying to follow Jesus. Jericho, of course, was a place of victory for another person whose name, was, whose name means the Lord saves. That is, Jesus is Joshua in the Old Testament, more than a millennium earlier. Jericho was a famous place, thus, in the Old Testament. Perhaps it's one of the oldest occupied cities in the world. It's one of the lowest as well in, in terms of elevation, about 840 feet below sea level. So the path for pilgrims from Jericho to Jerusalem is really a difficult one. It's a distance of only 20 miles, but a rise of two-thirds of a mile. From Jericho to Jerusalem, you go up over 3,500 feet in elevation. So this is the path that they're on. This is also the setting of the parable of the Good Samaritan on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. It was a rugged, kind of a steep and difficult path. As they're leaving the city, they see this blind man who's begging. The blind, of course, would have had special exclusions from the life of Israel. Leviticus 21 tells us how the blind couldn't serve as priests. Rabbinical writings from the time or afterwards indicate that they were unclean necessarily because they couldn't see, so they couldn't tell what was clean and what was not clean. Um, but blindness wasn't like leprosy. They weren't um, you know, cast off and, and completely separated from the rest of the population, but of course they had a very difficult life. And here's the man who's begging in order to live. According to a couple commentaries that I read, Bartimaeus is the only person that Jesus heals in the Synoptic Gospels, that is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, whose name is actually given. And you can research that. I didn't have a chance to research it myself. John, of course, records the names of some who are healed, like Lazarus. But the others don't. I think the closest would be Jairus' daughter and Peter's mother-in-law, right, who are people who are, are, you know, we're told who they are, who they're related to, but their names aren't given. And I don't know why the gospel writers chose not to include people's names most of the time, but there's something interesting about the fact that they included Bartimaeus' name. Uh, Bartimaeus is an Aramaic name. Mark explains it for us. It means the son of Timaeus. Timaeus was a common name uh, in the day, but in Greek, the, the name Timaeus sounds like the word for value. Sounds like the word for worth. And so I think Mark wants us to see that this man's name tells us something about him, that he has a human face, that he's valuable, that he has worth, even though he's broken, even though he's helpless, even though he's begging beside the road. He's a man who's made in the image of God. He's a unique individual. He's important in God's eyes, and Jesus will illustrate that. This verse also tells us that he was beside the road. The word for road is the same as the word for way. If you read in the book of Acts, you see that the church in the early Christian movement sometimes was called the way, uh, the, the road, which means that this idea that following Jesus changed our path. It was a new path. It was a new road to be on. And the, and the image goes back to the Old Testament where it talks about the way of following God and the journey of, of walking with the Lord. That life is pictured, the life of discipleship is pictured as this walk along 
the road, something like Pilgrim's Progress, right? But Bartimaeus isn't on the way. He's sitting outside. This isn't a disciple. This is a bystander. Not a bystander, I guess, a bysitter. But, of course, that's not the end of the story. Verse 47. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. We don't know what Bartimaeus might have heard or known about Jesus before this encounter. Someone in the crowd apparently told him that it was Jesus the Nazarene, that it was Jesus of Nazareth who was passing by. But Bartimaeus doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth. He says, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Son of David, of course, is, a, is one of those titles that's full of meaning. It's only used here in this place in Mark's gospel, but it's, it has a clear messianic association. The Messiah was the promised coming king who would sit on David's throne, and that would be in fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. The Messiah would be of the tribe of Judah, of the lineage and the house of David. The Messiah would fulfill the covenant promises of 2 Samuel 7, of the forever house and kingdom of David. The people recognize this fact in the next chapter, during the triumphal entry itself, when they cry out, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, as Jesus comes down on the donkey. So Bartimaeus is giving a public and very clear expression of Jesus' identity. He's calling him son of David. The blind man can see it. He's proclaiming it powerfully. As important as Peter's proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah is in chapter 8, this is just as clear, and this is much more public, right? The crowd is hearing him say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd, someone in the crowd at least, told him it was Jesus of Nazareth. But the blind man sees Jesus, the son of David. The crowd tells him to be quiet, but he shouts all the more, asking for mercy. And then what happens? Verse 49 Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Jesus stops the whole crowd, this joyful procession of pilgrims, to recognize a son of value, his point of need. One interesting thing is that Jesus doesn't go to Bartimaeus directly. Instead, Jesus uses the crowd to bring Bartimaeus, or the news to Bartimaeus, uh, to him. Right? The crowd has been telling Bartimaeus, rudely, really, shut up, be quiet, he doesn't want to hear you. Now the crowd has the opportunity to bring good news to Bartimaeus. Perhaps this is a teaching moment for the crowd, isn't it? To recognize that this man is a human who's in need, that he has value even though he's sitting beside the road. So they call to him, cheer up, be encouraged. The uh, Syriac version uses the verb here, that comes from the noun uh, for heart. So it means literally take heart. Be heartened. This is good news. Be encouraged, Bartimaeus. He's calling for you. Verse 50. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see Mark tells us that he threw his cloak aside, he jumped up. It's a very active, you know, 
uh, kind of action ran to Jesus. It's a picture of one who can't contain himself, that his shouting has paid off. Jesus has noticed him. And the detail of throwing off the cloak is an interesting one. It's not something that certainly needed to be mentioned. And so there's a couple of different suggestions. Why, why is that detail here? What does it suggest to us? One suggestion that I read is that uh, the cloak was seen as a, kind of a sign of hindrance in following Jesus. So the man is throwing off his cloak. He's throwing off this hindrance so that he can jump and so that he can run and he can come to Jesus. A different meaning is that perhaps this cloak signified him as a beggar. And so in throwing it aside, Bartimaeus is saying, my begging days are over. That's my old life. I'm running to Jesus. In either case, we notice, right, he's, he's eager, and he wants to discard that that gets in his way. Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? And interestingly, this is the exact same question that Jesus asked uh, the brothers in verse 36. They came to him with a request, and uh, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, right, we want to sit at your right and left. They said, we want a position of power and glory. We want to be seated prominently with you in the coming kingdom. This man addresses Jesus as rabuni. It's a heightened form of rabbi, teacher. It implies great respect, but it also implies a kind of closeness. The only other time this form is used is when Mary Magdalene recognizes Jesus in the garden after the resurrection. She thinks he's the gardener, right? And then you remember that he says something, he says her name, and she says Rabuni and turns toward him. So it's a, it's a title that, that says my master, my teacher, in a way that's respectful and intimate. It fits with Bartimaeus' understanding of who Jesus is, of his greatness and of his nearness. Bartimaeus, of course, had a very simple request he wants to see. Probably this means he wants to regain his sight uh, that he had lost at some point earlier, unlike the, the man who was born blind, the story we read about in John chapter 9. Physical sight, of course, is a metaphor that's used oftentimes in the Bible, a picture of belief, of understanding clearly, of being enlightened. In a sense, the miracle of Jesus giving the man sight is actually a confirmation of what we've already seen. The blind Bartimaeus, this man, sees what's really important. He sees it much more than the crowd seems to see it. He sees who Jesus is. He calls him son of David. He understands. And he thinks that Jesus will have mercy on him. And so the gift of restoration of his physical sight is really a smaller miracle, right, than the work of the Spirit in his life such that he can see who Jesus is that he can call out to him. Verse 52, Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight, and he followed Jesus along the road. The end of the story for Bartimaeus is a new direction in life. Jesus says that Bartimaeus' faith healed him. The word is kind of one of these that has two meanings. One is to heal, the other is to save, um, depending on the context. It's a very common word in the Greek New Testament, and so it implies sometimes a physical restoration and sometimes a spiritual one, and in a way, probably in a place, in a story like this, it probably implies both. It would be, it wouldn't be wrong to say, your faith has saved you, as some versions 
you know, some of our English versions may perhaps translate it that way. The point is that Bartimaeus has been restored in a physical way as a sign of a deeper spiritual reality. His life has been changed eternally. And the restoration of his eyesight is the physical manifestation of that spiritual healing. Jesus says to him, go. It's sort of permission to go on your way, not like go away. Um, But Bartimaeus doesn't run home. He joins the crowd. What happened? The end of the story. Where is he? He's on the road. He's on the way. He's in the way. This group of followers of Jesus, those whose lives are characterized by following him. He's not sidelined and helpless anymore. He's on the way. He's following Jesus. What does all this mean for us this morning? As I reflected on it this week, I think it is a profound picture of conversion. It's the picture of the making of a new disciple. It's compressed into this short narrative, but all the themes are here. Bartimaeus begins the story without much hope in the world. He's begging, he's broken, he's helpless. He's ignored, or worse, by those who are around him. His encounter with Jesus is characterized by a concrete expression of faith. What does his faith look like here? It looks like faith to understand who Jesus really is. Faith to call out to him for mercy, for undeserved kindness and grace. He's calling for mercy. He's not thinking he's earned anything, right? It's faith to keep calling out even when people tell him to be quiet. It's faith to abandon his old life and throw off his cloak. It's faith to ask for a miracle. It's faith to follow Jesus on a new path as a result of what happens. And the story doesn't tell us explicitly how he got this kind of faith, but we know from the Bible that it comes from the Spirit as a result of the Spirit's work in the life of a person who enlightens their soul and gives spiritual sight to those who are blind and dead in their own sins. In the past couple chapters of Mark, we've seen numerous examples of failing disciples. The twelve who act worldly, they're seeking power and privilege. Those of them who didn't have enough faith to cast out the demon. The rich man who walked away from Jesus clinging to all of his stuff. We can learn much from those examples. We can also learn through the contrast of Bartimaeus, who appears as this new and fresh and model disciple, showing the power of Jesus to change his life. And it's just in time, right? Now is the time to see. Jesus is arriving at the gates of Jerusalem. What about for us? Do we have the same urgency? Who will know? Who knows what will happen tomorrow or this week or later today? The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, he's quoting from Isaiah 49, that today is the day of God's favor and the day of salvation for all who believe. So we have to start, as we're encountering this text, we have to start with the question, do we believe? And that's the most important and the simplest question. Are we like Barnabas, or are we sitting alongside the road? We can be in church and still be sitting alongside the road. We can say the right things and still not be following Jesus. Is there a point where you've recognized 
that you're a follower of Jesus? Have you seen who he is and what he's done? And the good news is that he did it, that it's done, that salvation from brokenness and sin and shame and misery is accomplished once for all in the cross. And so what's offered to us is a life of fulfillment and promises yet to come uh, heaven and all the, the amazing life that awaits. It's a gift. It's offered to us freely, but at a great cost to the son of David. Do you see it? Are we seeing or blind? Are you alongside the road waiting but not yet on the way? The call of the gospel message goes out, and it goes out so clearly from this text. God is drawing people to himself. God is the one who creates faith in us. And how encouraging to hear the story of Morgan and the others that we saw in Quebec, to be reminded of that fact. The second question comes from the passage as well. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Have you thought about that question? What do you want Jesus to do for you? James and John had an agenda. They wanted Jesus to do something to show their own gain, their own privilege. Bartimaeus was looking for something too, of course. But what's the difference? To ask for healing, it probably not selfish. I mean, it helps Bartimaeus, but it's not a selfish request. But sometimes our prayers are selfish, or what we expect from Jesus is just about us. We want Jesus to add to our lives. We want him to be on our side as a kind of bonus. We ask for ourselves. Perhaps we don't ask enough for strength to be a disciple. Perhaps we don't ask enough for wisdom in walking along this path, or for the courage to follow Perhaps we don't have enough faith that God would make new disciples around us. That there are other Bartimaeuses, that there are sons and daughters of worth and value who need to hear the gospel message, who may be around us at our workplace, at our school, at our grocery store, wherever we are. Consider your faith in this area. We were challenged during the Quebec trip to really consider how to bring that experience home with us, how to share it with you all, how to, how to tell the stories of God's work in the, our lives and in the lives of others. And as we consider what we want Jesus to do for us, we should, we should recognize first and foremost what he's done, what he's already done. Powerfully, we see that work set before us at the table, don't we? It's for new disciples. It's for lifelong disciples. It's a gift. It's a sacrament for us to find physical and spiritual food and to find it in Jesus, to recognize our need and to see his provision. And so now as we continue, let's prepare our hearts for the table and all that God offers for us in Jesus, the son of David. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful for the reminder that you are active and at work in the lives of people and in our hearts. And Jesus, we thank you for this story of Bartimaeus and how uh, you've preserved it for us, 
how you made this happen, and that we could see and be encouraged uh, by one who was blind and helpless, uh, who is restored, the broken who is healed, and how we see that that's a picture of all of us. As we prepare for the, the celebration of communion with you, we pray that you would continue to bless our worship and guide our thoughts, continue to teach us through this passage this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.